Wonderful to be together this morning, and if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Paul Buckley, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to bring you God's Word this morning, His living Word, His life-giving Word, His true Word, His Word that transforms us and guides us throughout the week. And that's what we... Believe that's what we trust as we go through his word this morning. We'll be looking at Revelation 21 and the beginning of 22. We are covering from last week and this week uh, the topic of heaven and considering heaven and considering living for heaven. So, this is living for heaven part two. Last week we talked about the, the whole perspective of living for heaven and what's called the intermediate state, which is heaven now. When we go to be with the Lord now before he returns, what is heaven like? What is involved with that? And what I want to hit on in this time from Revelation is what is the final heaven like? What's our final home like? As perhaps you're turning there, I um, just want to share. I, I was thinking about this topic and I was thinking about this passage today. And it made me think of a TV show. Uh, that's actually no longer live. I think they're, they finished last January, but the show Extreme Home Makeover. Uh, anyone here like Extreme Home Makeover? Yep. And it's something I, I like it, and, um, and I watched it for, for a while. And every, every episode is pretty much the same plot, the same idea, yet, yet I still would be there after, at, at every time just, you know, with tears in my eyes at times, you know, because of what happened. And you always knew what was going to happen, but it was just so wonderful to to follow the storyline, and, and basically the storyline was this, that each week there was a, a family who had um, particular needs, had some sort of hardship, and it would feature this family, uh, and their hardship could be different things. Uh, it might be uh, someone in the family was disabled and had a serious need, or, or maybe that family had a, a very worthy uh, ministry or cause that they were running, and they were in a house that basically couldn't meet their needs. It just was... Uh, not a good house for what they needed, whether that was a hardship or a disability or a ministry. Uh, usually these houses were somewhat run down. Some of them were, were basically like shacks. And what they would do is they would come in and, and uh, you would see that house, you'd meet the family, and the crew would come in and they would send the family away to Disney World for like a week. And they would go to Disney World, and while they were in Disney World, this crew, uh, along with uh, workers from the community and so forth, would, would tear down that old house would tear it down, and they would build this new home. And, and so you would, uh, you would watch them working on it, and then uh, at the end of the week, they would bring the family back. And the family would come in on a limo, and they would park these big buses, one or two big buses in front of the home, so they couldn't see the new home. And they would welcome them, they would come in, and they'd be greeted by the community. They'd all be there cheering, and they'd get out of the, they'd get out of the limo, and they'd stand there and... and um, and then uh, Ty, I think was the guy, right? Ty, he would, he would say, what, do you remember? Move that bus. They'd move the bus, and there would be the, there would be the home each time. It's still, I still loved it, even though I knew what was coming. And there would be the home. And, they would, and you'd watch the family be like, like that, as they looked at the home. And uh, just overwhelmed by this home. And then the rest of the show, they would go through and, and just look at this home that was tailor-made for them. 
and, and there'd be rooms they'd go into, and it was just wonderful. And then, then you'd have the interviews and all the, all the tears about how, you know, how wonderful it was and how this would allow them to take care of their family members and so forth. And, and so the show went on for like 10 years, didn't it? I think some, each time that. And I thought of that show. I thought of that, that show. And, and, and I thought of actually Revelation 21 and 22. Guys, what we're doing this morning as we read Revelation is we're saying, move that bus and show me this home. We're looking through Revelation 21 and 22 at our final home. And, and in the limitations of words in some ways, uh, uh, we can't fully describe what this new home is, but Revelation gives us pictures and images and, and lots of ways to see the glory of this new home. My desire in this little mini-series is that we not only look at that home and, and, and are staggered by it, but that it changes how we live now. For really, in some ways, we are living in, in the in-between time. We are living in that maybe that shack, trying to get things done. And, and we're called to serve the Lord, but we're called to orient ourselves to that final home and make the most of this life and to understand this life as best we can because... We have a final home. So let's pray. My prayer is that God, by his grace, would move that bus in your eyes, and you would see the home and be changed. So let's ask for that. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, this part of scripture. And we thank you, Lord, for the, the picture of our new home. And, and Lord, for the wonderful storyline in the whole of scripture that, that talks about this home this home you first intended, and then this home you hinted at as you worked through your people, and then this final home we see in Revelation. We pray, Lord, you'd reveal this home to us. You'd show us the glory of heaven, and you'd change our lives, change how we live now. Give us joy. Give us strength. Give us understanding. Give us wisdom through your word. Come, Holy Spirit, and, and work. Lord, left to myself, I cannot serve you, I cannot serve your people, but you have chosen me to serve, you've given us grace, and you've given us your spirit, so come and speak to us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's read together Revelation chapter 21, I'll start in verse 1 and I'll go to 22.5. This is the revelation of John, he is being shown things about uh, both the present and the future, and in this section he's learning about really the future. And he says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelve amethysts, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never shut, be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. God's word from Revelation. What, what a picture. What an amazing description of our final home. This is actually the most extensive and most explicit description of our final home in the whole New Testament. There are parallels, by the way, in Isaiah and elsewhere. I would encourage you to look up even lengthy parallels, particularly in Isaiah and Ezekiel. But here we have a lengthy description, a, a, a fully orbed picture of our final home. And it, and it forms the final conclusion to this epic tale, this epic story, this true story of the Bible. And it's meant not just to inform us. It's meant not just to inspire us. It's meant to transform us. It's meant to grip our hearts and reorient our thinking and change our lives and teach us how to live in this world. That's the purpose of this section of Scripture. This was written to people who were struggling in the world. They were living in a world that was broken with sin and suffering. They were living in a world where there was economic chaos, perhaps like today. But even more than that, there was also murderous persecution and, and serious political corruption going on. And Revelation was written for them that they might understand these truths so that they might live in this world, this broken world, and make the most of their time here. That's what's meant here. In this, that's the purpose here in this scripture, among other things. And it fits into the storyline, this entire storyline we see in scripture. Actually, if you look through your Bible and you start out early in the Bible, God created everything in the beginning and he created a perfect home for mankind to live in in the very beginning, the Garden of Eden. And, and sometimes we think of a garden, the Garden of Eden as a, some sort of wilderness, but it actually was a it was like a royal garden. It was a garden, a place to live. It was a place where kings and queens lived. And he made this place for mankind to dwell and to rule from that place over the earth. That was the original intention. Now remember that as we read and think about Revelation because that original intention still holds. But you know what happened. You know that in that story that, that mankind, that Adam and Eve sinned. They chose to follow the path of self-determination versus reliance on God. They sinned, they rebelled, they disobeyed his word. Disobedience to the word of God is essentially saying, I can do it on my own, my own way, thank you. Really, it's saying, I can be my own God. I can rule over my own universe. That was the statement that they made. That's the statement that we make as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And so it, it, it ruined paradise. They were cast out in their sin and rebellion and their foolishness in the great lie and deceit of sin. And the story could have ended right there. But God had other things in mind. 
And so the storyline in the Bible is about God wooing and winning his people back to himself. And all along, he's hinting of this final home. He's looking back to Eden, but he's looking forward to something even better than Eden. He's looking forward to what we read about this morning. And, and we see throughout the history of God's people hints about this final home. He calls his people to himself. He calls a people to himself by faith. And he calls them to walk with him in relationship with him under covenant. And he has them build a tabernacle, which is a pattern of the one in heaven, the pattern of the one we read about. It's a picture. It's a hint of that final home. It's a place of beauty. It's a place where God dwells. It's a place where God meets mankind. And that tabernacle gets transformed into a temple, a glorious place, a place of worship, a place where God provides for his people that they might enter into his presence because he's a holy God. He's perfect. He's sinless. He's good. He's glorious. He cannot tolerate evil. Sin is evil. Yet he makes provision because he wants his people to dwell in this final home. And so there's an altar in front of that temple. There's a place where sacrifices are made, where there's blood shed to speak of forgiveness, to speak of atonement for sin, of the payment of the penalty of sin, of removing the problem of sin so there might be fellowship, so that the people could come into God's presence. It's a hint. It's a sign. It's not the final product. It points to something greater. He establishes also a kingdom. He calls David and his descendants to rule over this kingdom. And yet, as good as it is at times in that kingdom, it's, it's, it's not the final product. And both the temple and the tabernacle and the kingdom and the history of God's people uh, is a history of failure. The same failure that happened in the garden. It continues, and so David's kingdom eventually falls apart. The temple gets destroyed. The people are scattered because of their sin. And then one arises, arrives on the scene who is unlike any other man. He's the God-man. God shows up as a man to remedy the situation and to provide for this final home. And he comes and he lives the perfect life. He obeys. He believes God. He does what is right. And we learn as we read the storyline of Jesus that he is actually the fulfillment of the temple. For he is the place where we meet God. And he is the place where atonement is made for our sins. He's the fulfillment of all the things the altar spoke of. Ultimately shown through his sacrificial death on the cross. Where he sheds his blood for you. That as you come to him through faith, you would receive full forgiveness and reconciliation. And through that, an invitation that is guaranteed to this final home. He is the ultimate king. And he begins his reign upon, really, his resurrection. Even before that, as he comes on the scene, he brings the kingdom. And he's reigning now from heaven and he's going to reign over his people and over this world that's a mixture of the kingdom and the kingdom of this world. And he's going to finish the job. And he will return and finish and establish the final kingdom, the fulfillment of the temple, the final home. I want us to understand these things because I think it helps us understand the scripture. 
It helps us understand God's heart. It helps us understand our destiny as believers. Started out in the garden, hints made about that final home, and then this picture of the final home here in Revelation. And what a picture it is. It's so wonderful. What a glorious picture. There's, there's a lot in this section. I cannot do this justice. It's, it's always my temptation uh, as a, a pastor and a teacher to want to hit everything because I want you guys to get the most out of the passage. There's a lot here. I won't be able to touch on anything, everything, but I want to touch on some of the key themes as we go through. First, notice in verse 1, John sees, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. There's, there's a dramatic shift in the scene here. It's a dramatic change in this drama of Revelation and the drama of the Scriptures. Previous to this, there's been the earth and the heaven as we know it now. This earth is here, and there's a heaven removed from this earth, the third heaven where God dwells, the, the spiritual realm. And actually, different, there are different levels of the spiritual realm, but the ultimate Spiritual realm is the throne room of God, heaven itself. And so that's, what, that's been the case up till now. And then something happens in chapter 20. It's the end of all things. And it says in 2011, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. There's the judgment of the nations happening. There's the, the judgment day has occurred here, is occurring. And then it says, From his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. The earth and the heavens, as we know them now, fled away. They were, they were dealt with. They were put away. And so there's this change in the scene. And now, in 21, there is a new heaven. John sees a new heaven and a new earth. It's a new heaven and a new earth. The word that's used for new is a word that has a nuance. It doesn't mean a sort of new, like a brand new, totally separate start but it's more like a renewed earth and heaven. So there's a connection between this new heaven and new earth in the old one. There's a radical change has gone on. There's been judgment over, over the previous creation. There's a new creation, but it's still connected. And we see that in Scripture, actually, uh, this whole idea of, of the connection between the old and the new. I want you to understand that because there is a false idea that's out there that I don't think serves us well. That we live now on this physical earth, and we do physical things. We, we have bodies, and we, we like to go swimming in the ocean and eat good food and, and, and plant things and do physical things. But then when we go to be with the Lord, we'll be spiritual, and there won't be an earth. There will be, we'll just kind of be in the spiritual place doing spiritual things, whatever those spiritual things are. I don't know, really. I mean, I do know what Scripture talks about in terms of being spiritual. But, but we have this idea, this notion out there that there's this separation between the physical and the spiritual. It's actually not a biblical idea. It's a, a Greek philosophy under Plato that, that the, the physical is, is, by nature being physical, is sinful and evil. And that in order to, for things to be good, they have to be spiritual. That's not what Scripture teaches. There's this new home is a physical home. It's the earth and heaven are united here. But it's the earth. We are going to have physical bodies. It's going to be a physical place. There's going to be a connection between the earth as we know it now and that in the new creation. Yes, it will be uh, spiritual. Yes, it will be glorious, but it will be physical. We're, we'll have bodies. There will be an earth. 
There's a connection between the two, and, and throughout Scripture, as you read, you'll, you'll see those connections. Jesus talks about, and uh, actually, uh, Peter talks about in Acts 3, as he's giving a message about Jesus, he says in verse 21, whom, speaking of Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke. So there's a restoring. It's, a, it's restoring the heaven and the earth. It's new. Jesus, when he speaks about this time in Matthew 19, calls it a, with a similar word. Peter asks him, he, uh, this is an interaction about leaving everything, and, um, and he's, Peter says, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, and that, that's what the word literally means, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much. So in this new creation, you're going to receive many times as much of these things like houses and farms and family and will inherit eternal life. It's the restoration, the regeneration. And we also uh, see this connection between the old and new most prominently with Jesus himself. When Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, did he have a mere spiritual body? No, he had a physical body. He had a physical body. He, he proved it by letting them touch him, right? And eating food with them. You can't eat food if you're just a spirit, because, I don't know, it'll just kind of go through you or something. It, you can't eat food. He could eat food. He was physical. He had a physical body, yet it's interesting. He had, it was so glorified that it, it appears that they had trouble recognizing him at times. That might have been because he was just hidden from their eyes by design, but I think part of it is that he looked different. There was a glory about him, a difference. Yet they did recognize him when they finally were able. And they also saw on him marks from this life, didn't they? Come and touch my hands, touch my side, see the nail marks. Physically, they could see the scars that were there. He was transformed. He was glorious. I mean, it, it was amazing. If you, the, his body is a, an amazing body. It could just it seemingly materialize suddenly, like beaming down with Star Trek or something. I don't know how it worked, but they could just, he could show up in different places. But it's still physical. Uh, and not only that, but his, his body, he ascended into heaven with that body. It's a body that could go to heaven and live in heaven in the spiritual realm. So it, it's, it's wild. But it's physical, it's real, there's a connection. And I want us to understand that this new heaven and this new earth have a connection. I think that helps us understand heaven and helps us get away from this idea that it's just like ethereal on clouds strumming harps. You know, if you think heaven's like that, it's not going to really motivate you in this life to want to go there in some ways. But if you start to see that heaven is like the earth, but way better, it'll start to motivate you. It will start to change your view of your final home. The glories of this earth are, are, are truly wonderful. The things that we see around us are, are good and glorious. There's so many things. Things like the ocean and mountains and trees and flowers. These are all beautiful things. But in the new heaven, the new creation, they will be all the more glorious. Uh, anyone here been to the Grand Canyon? Hey, I haven't been. I've seen pictures. I think I have a picture to show of the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon, from what I understand, is a breathtaking vista, a breathtaking place to visit. It's 277 miles long, 
18 miles wide, one mile deep, and it's just, it's one of those places you have to go there to really grasp how magnificent it is. It's glorious. But I believe the new creation will be so glorious that things like the Grand Canyon, which are glorious, will seem like 2D compared to heaven, which will be 3D. They will seem like a kindergartner's sketch of things compared to what we will see in the new creation. The Grand Canyon will be nothing compared to what is in the new creation. And that's part of what John is getting at in this description of, of the new Jerusalem, of the new creation. It's the fulfillment of all the promises beyond description. And so he has to try to describe this thing. And in some ways, the picture that he sees is, is the reality. It's also symbolic of the reality. It's not the fullness of it. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Why do I say all this? Because I want you guys, I want us to set our hearts on our final home. When you set your heart on that final home, it, it changes how you look at life now. It makes sense of things. It makes sense of suffering. Suffering is senseless if there's not a final purpose to it. Suffering is something that's difficult, we don't ask for, but God uses it to teach us to treasure that which is truly worthy of being treasured. It teaches us to value something of true, lasting value. It teaches us in some ways to, to forget about this passing world in ways that we might think about it, and, and to, to perhaps turn away from self-reliance and to treasure Christ, and to treasure our final home. It prepares us for that glory. If there's no future glory, suffering doesn't make sense. But when we grasp the wonder of the future glory, we can see the fruitfulness of suffering. It helps us invest in this life in the most wisest way possible. If we understand heaven, if we understand what awaits us, we're going to invest here. Think of it this way. If you had a beautiful new home that you were able to buy and was being built, and it was just your dream home, uh, I don't know what your dream home would be. I, I think of um, our dream home, I would love to have a house on the ocean. So I, I can kind of fill out the whole picture. Uh, the only problem is it's 20 minutes to the ocean. I want to be in Haverhill. I, I don't know how we work that out. But, but, but I think of my dream home, you know, a place on the ocean with ocean vistas and a, and a garden. We saw a place by the beach the other day. They had a garden out in front. That's kind of what my dream home would be. And, and so imagine your dream home, whatever it is. Maybe it's a farmette, or maybe it's a Victorian. Maybe it's in the city. Whatever your dream home would be. Say you had your dream home, and the plan was to move in your dream home next spring. You just had to finish it. You had to sell your house here. What would be your orientation to your house, your current house, if you were planning to move in in the spring? You would seek to... to Sell that house. You would seek to maximize your use of that house for the sake of that future home. So you would keep it nice and clean. You would work hard. You would, you would be thinking of how I can invest in my home now so it will affect that final home. There'd be a different orientation. Would there not be in how you live right now? That's how revelation is supposed to function in our lives. This is our final home. And so let's live now. Let's invest now in that final home. There, there are rewards that are offered in that final home. If you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you are guaranteed that final home. But you, you have a, a, a say, an influence in, on the quality of that final home by how you live now. The more you invest now, 
The more you invest your talents in, in the things that God calls you to, and those, those things include things like loving your family, loving your spouse, providing for your family, loving your neighbors, working hard, investing in the kingdom, investing in the church, the mission of the church, serving the poor, all those different things. Those are rewarded in heaven. They are investments now. And it gives us the ability to, to, to wisely live this life now and to not waste our life now. It's a good question to ask, you know, of yourself and in your major priorities. You should ask, we should ask ourselves, will this have an impact on my final home or not? And if not, then I probably shouldn't be doing it. Will this have an impact, this major priority? I don't, I don't mean trying to make sense of, you know, whether to wash the dishes now or later in the day or anything like that. I mean the, the major priorities, career and, 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 uh, and, and investments, job choices, locations, home churches, um, what you do with your money, those things. Are those major things? Ask the question, will this be an investment? Does this matter and how it impacts my final home? I want us, I want you to maximize your investment in that final home. Uh, I have a selfish interest in that because I have to stand before God and give an account for your lives. And I want to say I did my best to help you make the most of heaven. That's the call of Revelation. This new heaven and this new earth. And it's interesting that, that uh, this new heaven and this new earth, uh, we see a city coming down. A city, this new Jerusalem, comes down from the heavens to earth. And, and God says repeatedly in this section of Scripture that he will be with man. God will be with man. And, and we need to understand what, what God's getting at there. That heaven and earth will be united in the new creation. Heaven and earth are united. Heaven comes down to earth, and they're joined together as one in the new creation. That's That's fantastic. That's glorious. They're together in the new creation. And we are to live in that place where heaven and earth are together. God will be with us in all his glory. This city is, is made of gold in, in, this, in Revelation. As John described it, it's of gold. But, but is it normal gold? What sort of gold is it? Transparent gold. It sounds like something out of Star Trek. Transparent aluminum. It was transparent gold. Why was it transparent? I think part of it is that the glory of God could shine right through the whole city. The brightness of God, as it talks about the throne room of God, there's light, unapproachable light in his glory. And, and that's both a reality but also a picture of the glory of God. God's glory is far beyond anything imaginable. The greatest thing about heaven is not all that, that, that it's made out of gold and all these things. That's all great. It's not just that there's, there's wonderful things to do and you will be able to use your talents in heaven and serve and worship him just as it was intended in the garden. By the way, in the Garden of Eden, God put man in the garden. It was without sin. And did he give him something to do or did he just strum a harp? He was to work the garden. That was before the fall. He was to work. The new creation, you will work, but it won't be under a curse. And it will be joy. And you'll use your gifts and you'll serve and there'll be harmony and, and, and God will be with you. And because God is there, because God is at the center, because his glory is on display, that work will be, will be enjoyable beyond imagination. Can you think of the best things you love to do now? Whatever they might be. I, uh, I, I haven't done this in a while, but I uh, had carved a couple wood, uh, 
wood decors, duck decors. I enjoyed doing that. It was just fun to do that. I, I think heaven, it's not going to be just like fun it is now, but it will be full of glory. Because God will be there and we'll have perfect fellowship. There will be no curse. There will be no sin. So his glory shines in the city. It needs no sun. God's glory is brighter than the sun. And it shines in the city and it shines throughout the city. He is with us in this new city, in the new Jerusalem. This place is fulfillment of Jerusalem. Uh, we can go back in Scripture and see Jerusalem's role. It was a place where the temple was. It was the place where God touched earth. It was, the temple was called actually his footstool. It was just his foot touched earth. But in the new Jerusalem, there will be no temple because he himself will be there in all his glory. Think of that. The, the angels cannot even look at his glory. And here he is in this new Jerusalem, shining through transparent gold, Everywhere, touching every life, every aspect of existence. All that you do is worship because his glory fills the earth as he promises. And so John is communicating this to God's people. And this is a massive city. Do you see the dimensions there? I don't know if you know what a stadia is. It's, it's, a, it's a hundred paces, double paces, so 600 feet, I think is what it is. You don't need to do the calculations. The city's size, literally, would be 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, and it's a cube, so it's 1,500 miles high. Now, it's hard to know sometimes in Revelation what is exactly literal and what is a picture. I'm not sure. I think it could be either way. But the reason it's a cube is because in the temple... There was a place called, inside the temple, called the Holy of Holies. That was a place where God himself dwelt. And as a high priest, he would go in there once a year to, to offer blood on the altar. And you did not mess with the Holy of Holies. From what I have read, I remember they would tie a rope onto the guy. And he had bells on him because if he did something sinful there, he would drop dead, and they'd have to pull him out. The bells would stop jingling, and they'd know it's time to pull him out. It was a place where God's holy, awesome presence dwelled, and you did not mess with the Holy of Holies. Through the work of the ultimate sacrifice, Christ, the Lamb who was offered on the cross, who shed his blood for us, now there's no more barrier. We can walk in and live in the Holy of Holies. This new Jerusalem is a humongous cube. It's the Holy of Holies. God himself dwells there. And it's massive. Now, I don't know all, all of what's being said, but the number 12 is a number used in Revelation and elsewhere to, to symbolize the people of God. There are 12 tribes of Israel. Those are the 12 people. And then in the New Testament, there are 12 apostles who represent the, the New Covenant people of God. 12 represents the people of God. So it's 12,000 stadia. Well, where does 1,000 come from? 1,000 in Revelation means big, huge. That was like us saying gazillion. So maybe it would say 12 gazillion stadia by 12 gazillion stadia by 12 gazillion stadia. This is a big place. That's the idea. Why would God... Give us these sort of dimensions. What was he trying to communicate? That this place is big and there's lots of room for God's people to live here in his presence. It's massive. And, and, I, and I have an engineering background, so I started to do calculations and thinking, you know, if, if this is exactly how it is, how many people, if it was just 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles and not 1,500 miles tall, you know, just, just two-dimensional, it would fit 22 billion people comfortably. But it's not just that. It is 
1,500 miles, 12,000 stadia tall. So it would fit 22 million billion people. Now, that's a lot of people. That's way more than I have ever lived. I think the is the number that have lived somewhere around 10 billion that, that we understand. And, you know, we don't know all of who live, but the estimate is about that. Well, now the point here is not to try to figure out how many people fit in the city. <laughs> the point is to recognize it's big. And there is an implicit invitation in that to us and to everybody who reads Revelation. It's this. There's room for you in heaven. There's room for you. And there's an invitation to come. Revelation actually finishes with an invitation near the end. It says in verse 22, uh, chapter 22, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. All this wonderful stuff about our new home, and it's glorious, and I don't have time to touch on it, how it's Eden as well. The, the tree of life is there, the water, the river of the water of life is there flowing through from the throne. There's healing, there's glory. It's, it's wonderful. But this is given for us to invite us to live for heaven. And it's, it's explicit at times in the passage. We see things that are there and things that are not there in heaven. And there's wonderful things that are not there. There's no more tears. There's no more death. There's no more sorrow. No more pain. No more mourning. And God's people are there. And God's there. And it's glorious. But there's also things that are not there. It's very clear it says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, in verse 27. And then earlier it says, but as for the cowardly, the fatherless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, immoral so forth, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, why does it say that? Does God get his jollies out of making people who are bad feel bad? Does he just have a particular delight like to make people feel bad? No, not at all. God doesn't need to do that. He wouldn't do that. He's good. Why did he put it here? It's a warning. Now remember, this place is big. And then there's a warning given. And then there's a statement that only those who are in the Lamb's book of life will be in this glorious city. What's the Lamb's book of life? Well, it's the Lamb's book of life. What's the Lamb? The Lamb is the one who shed his blood for forgiveness. And so the invitation is, trust in the Lamb. Turn from your sin. Turn from trusting in self. And run to the Lamb who shed his blood for you. That you can be forgiven and know God and walk with God and, and come and be in that eternal home. Don't be so foolish to walk in detestable things. And the reality is, guys, all of us walk and have walked in detestable things. But those who run to the Lamb, those who flee from the, the holy justice of God to find it fulfilled in the Lamb, to find forgiveness in Him, their names are written in the book. And you can be in that book. You can be in that book today if you're not yet there. And all you need to say is, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I receive you, and I want to follow you. It's that simple. All you need to do is just say that. Confess with your mouth. Repent. 
Trust Christ. And your name will be in that book. And you will be there. There's lots of room in heaven. There's room for you. There's room for us. And as the band comes up and we close, the other side of this is it's a call to God's people to live for heaven. It's a call to us to set our hearts on heaven. To not allow sin to get a hold of our lives. There's a warning here for believers too that, that he who endures to the end will be saved. That your, the reality of your faith is shown as you hold on to the Lamb and trust Him and resist sin. And there is a reality that for all of us we could deny the faith and walk away and thus prove that there wasn't faith. So it's a warning to us to live for heaven by holding on to the Lamb and investing The other side related to that too is to do all we can in this life and how we deal to live for heaven. There's other scriptures I could read where Jesus teaches about this reality that we are to invest here for heaven. I love the story of the talents. It's where we get the word talent in English. It means your ability, but it actually means a a slab of gold. Jesus told the story that there were talents given out because the king went away. And he, he said, while I'm away, I want you to invest this talents. I want you to bring a return. And he gave different amounts to different people. And then he came back and he said, well, what did you do with your talent while I was gone? That, that is the judgment day. That is the time of, of getting ready to enter your final home. And, and each one gave an account. And, and the story, as the story goes, the one who had five, I think it was five, made five more and said, here, Lord, I took a risk. I was so eager to bless others and to please you. Here's what I did. Five more. Is the other one three or two? I can't remember. Same sort of thing. The one who did had one, he buried it in the ground. He didn't invest it. And, and the king rebuked him and said, basically, you, you don't belong to me if you live this way. There, there's a call in that as believers for us to take our talents and invest them in our final home, to receive that reward, to have our enjoyment of heaven expanded. We'll all be there if we put our faith in Christ and turn from our sin. But your reward will be proportional in a sense to how you invested in this life. So as we close, and before we close in song, I just want you to think, is there some priority in your life that you need to adjust? Is there something in your life that's a major priority that you're pursuing that doesn't make sense when you think of your final home? It could be a career. It could be how you spend time with your family. It could be your financial goals. It, it, it could just be a lot of different things, and I can't tell what the, that might be. But think through your major priorities and commitments. And is there one way to adjust how you live to better invest in your final home? I want to see you maximize your joy in heaven. I want to be able to even think back to this day, hearing this message, and hear you say, thank you. You reminded me of that truth. Here's how it made a difference. So let us think before the Lord and pray before the Lord one adjustment, and then we'll close in song.